Uh, well, with that, uh, I'm going to read our scripture for this morning. It's Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. So hear now the word of the Lord. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came down and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I will provi- so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we jump into our text for this morning, let's, let's pray. Father, without, without your presence and your action in our lives, our lives are just entirely on our own. And so we ask that you would, by your spirit, speak into our, our lives, the questions we have, the place we, we're wrestling in right now. God, speak into that place uh, that we may have your life and not just our own best efforts. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, this morning we are, we are finishing a long series in the book of Genesis. And this series is so long, when we started this series, I had three children, and now I have four. (laughs) And this is how big the fourth one is now. Right? Like, that's nothing to do with my sermon. It's just any time you can show a picture of a baby in a watermelon t-shirt, you just got to do it. Uh, But this is is how long the series has been. And any time you come to the end of of anything, you wonder, how's it going to end? Right? Is this going to end in a satisfying way that uh, this winter the end of the Star Wars trilogy or the latest Star Wars trilogy is going to come out and I have a friend who's a Star Wars fan who's like just really nervous about how this is going to end in the trailer they they even say the story of a generation comes to an end and I was uh I was you know thinking through this and saw a tweet that uh um that describes well you know just to calm all of our fears because J.J. Abrams one of the creators of Lost is the uh is going to finish the trilogy and the tweet read this so don't worry about the ending to Star Wars. The guy that started Lost is going to tie all the loose ends in the Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> Got a lot of Lost viewers over on this half of the room, I could tell. Right, like I, I spent eight years of my life in this show Lost and all these interesting mysteries, these interesting side, you know, stories. And then you get to the end, the last season, and all the creators are like, ah, never mind. It's essentially the end of Lost. And this fear of like a movie, a show... A story ending poorly, I think, mimics to some extent a fear all of us have in our own lives, our own story, our own existence, which is how, how does this end? How does everything I've given my life to, whether it be my work, vocation, my family, how does it all get wrapped up? Right, do I get my own J.J. You know, Abrams ending when it just ends with a, does it end with a thud, essentially, or does it end in some satisfying, meaningful ending. As a newer father, I wonder, how does my, like, where does the end of my family, what does that look like? How will that end? 
And the older I get, the, the more I realize how little control I have over the direction of my story, my life, where things are going. And the book of Genesis actually goes through this progression in its own way, in a, in a pretty powerful way. If you read the end of Genesis chapter 1 against the end of Genesis 50, the, the differences between those two chapters could not be more striking. Here's the end of Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his, own, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Skipping a couple of verses. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And then you get to the end of Genesis 50, it's very different. I mean, Genesis 1, it's life and possibilities and blessing, the life of God, joy. And I didn't read these verses, but this is how Genesis ends. Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Death, bones in a box, an end. You can't get more difference between how Genesis 1 starts with hopefulness and flourishing and joy. The life of God is everywhere and to the end of Genesis, which is, is death. Because Genesis 50 could not be more different than Genesis 1. And, and we probably all wonder, is, like, is that the ending? Is this, this just all of, of what we give our lives to, does it end with a thud or does it end in another way? And Genesis 50 is a, uh, there's a reason this book has been read for, for generations, for thousands of years, because it is, it has a powerful conclusion. And it does a couple of things in, in the conclusion. One is it, it really brilliantly summarizes the entire book of Genesis. Everything we've been talking about for, for all these weeks is summarized here in one sentence Joseph says to his brothers. But secondly, it also, it, it gives us this orienting hope. As we think about our own lives and direction and, 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 and all of the, the things we've given our lives to, how will it wrap up? Genesis 50 points in a, in a particular direction. So that's how I want to talk about this text. I want to I do the summarizing work of Genesis, which is the three things Joseph says to his brothers, which is, I'm not in the place of God. Uh, God, you meant this for evil. God meant this for good. Those three points. And then look at how Genesis doesn't end with bones in a box, but an orienting hope. So first, where, where this starts is first lesson of Genesis. The whole book, but also Genesis 50, is you are, or we are not in the place of God. We are not in the place of God. And last week we talked about this just incredible forgiveness and reconciliation that Joseph extended to his brothers. That the story of Joseph begins with uh, his brothers assaulting him, attacking him, and, and selling him into slavery. And at and and the end of their lives... Uh, Joseph rises to become the second most powerful person in all of the world. The brothers are starving. They need food. And they end up unknowing, uh, not knowing themselves that they're in front of Joseph. They end up in front of the person that they sold into slavery, assaulted physically, asking for bread. And what happens is this powerful moment of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's, that's last week. This week, it's clear, even though years have passed and reconciliation has begun to happen, the brothers are still not convinced that Joseph has truly forgiven them. And so they, jo Jacob dies and they wonder, now, will, now that dad is dead, will Joseph enact his revenge? And so they, they send Joseph a note, which essentially reads, dad died and his dying wish is for you to be nice to us. That's essentially what the note, uh, what they say to him. And Joseph, he, he, he is, he's broken over this. And he, the first thing he says to them 
is do not fear, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Which is a stunning question, because as I mentioned last week, typically the way we act anytime someone wrongs us is we immediately take the place of God, and we are ready to enact the revenge, the response we think the other person deserves. And Joseph cannot imagine that. But it's not just that. When we talked about that last week, essentially this, the, the biggest problem in Genesis for human beings is that we take the place of God. That's where everything broke down, everything went wrong when we decided we are going to take the place of God. And I want to think that out a little bit this morning. That How do we do that? Right? And last week it was largely around the way we, we refuse to forgive people. This week I want to take it a, a couple of different directions that are in the book of Genesis. And the first way that we replace God, the first way we do the opposite of Joseph and stand up and say, you know what, I will take the place of God um, here, is, is first we, we call the shots. I begin to call my own shots. I, be, I become my own moral authority in life. And, and so this goes back to Genesis 3. And oftentimes that story about the tree and the garden and the fruit that's eaten is often like turned into to like a silliness. Right? Someone ate an apple and everything went wrong. And it's, oh, this, this, the story's almost seen in a silly way. And yet it's, it's, it's not. It's a deeply profound story about what, what went wrong with the human race. And the key verse in that story is Genesis 3 verses 4 and 5. When the serpent says to Eve this, right, eat from the tree that God told you not to, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And two things need to be pointed out. First is that the promise the serpent makes is you can take the place of God. The central thing that breaks everything down in this world, this Flourishing, joyful, life filled with God world in Genesis 1, the thing that breaks it is we want to be God. And the way that works itself out in that story is that second phrase, knowing good and evil, which isn't what that specifically means is you choose good and evil for yourself. That God sort of lays out particular parameters this is good, this is evil. And the way, the way we became like God in the garden is when we started saying, no, I'm going to decide what is good and I'm going to decide what is evil. And if God calls something good that I want to be evil, I'm going to call it evil. And if God says something's evil and I want to call it good, I'm going to make that choice. And so the breakdown that happens in Genesis 3 is we become our own moral authority. We begin to call the shots. And ultimately, every one of us in this room, we have a fundamental choice in life, which is who, who is our moral authority? Who gives us a vision for good and evil in the world. Who calls the shots? Me, you, or God? There's no throne sharing that happens there with, with God. He doesn't like, let's talk this out. Let's, let's take a vote, right? Let's, that's not how it, God has laid out a particular vision of the universe. And you either like it or you don't. And you either bend your life and will to it, or you try to create your own, which is becoming like God. I'm just thinking this out in a couple of ways. And one is, is, is and I only go this because I'm going right to the most contested realities in our own cultural day. Most cultures throughout history, and the Bible's very clear in this, has assumed that, that you should give at least 10% of your income away. It wasn't until an enormously wealthy culture that we began to read that and say, well, does it really mean that? Is it really saying that? Isn't that there's some, it's not a law. It's not a rule. 
So one of the most well, our own, one of the most wealthy, outrageously wealthy cultures in history has challenged that teaching of God, which most cultures have said is very clear throughout history. So when it comes to money, who calls the shots? God or, or me? Last week, we, we, talked about, we talked about forgiveness, and that was a heavy, it was a heavy sermon. And since that in this room, a heavy, a heavy week, and we went to the Lord's Prayer, and we point out in, G, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is very clear that if you come to him seeking forgiveness, right, as, as Jesus, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. There's this very clear sense that if you withhold forgiveness from other people, you are, you are working outside the universe God has created not saying forgiveness is easy, right? Jesus, his own forgiveness came at a cross, right? It's not, it's not cheapening forgiveness. But people who say, I will not forgive, have moved into a new universe, a new world that is different than the Genesis 1 world God created. Or I think of it like this. Our, our own day, more so than any other perhaps, has enshrined this idea that I am my own moral authority. I am my own uh, determiner of what is right and what is wrong and so we have these little sayings that our culture repeats you know be true to yourself you do you follow your own hearts and and whatever whatever that saying is or whatever that spirit of this age is one what's that meant is in our own day and age it is virtually impossible to challenge anyone if they've done something wrong if someone says something they shouldn't have, if someone does something they shouldn't have done, to go to that person and say, you know, I think what you did was wrong, is almost certainly to invite a fight, a defensiveness, a reaction, uh, anger, resp- a responsiveness that is, is not inviting of the, the hurt or the critique that you've made towards them. That we're defensive, we're angry, we're upset when someone comes to us and says, I, th- I think you didn't approach that in the best way, or I think that was wrong. And that's because all of us, even th- those of us who maybe would rightfully say, be true to yourself, you do you, those sayings don't work. Even in the church world, and I've encountered this repeatedly, when someone is wrong, to speak that is rarely to be invited into a meaningful conversation about someone becoming more and more like Jesus, and often you're just inviting a fight. And I've long thought that church should be the one place that is refreshingly different than the rest of the world. Where when we hear someone say, I think you did that wrong. I think, I think you're off course here. There's not a fight, but there's a conversation. Not necessarily saying the person's right, but you recognize, as we all should as Christians, I've, I'm, tr- I'm always in this project of trying to put myself in the place of God and so when someone comes and says, you know, I think you're putting the, yourself in the place of God, that should not surprise us. And actually, we should be so concerned about our own just subtle, like, hidden ways we elevate ourselves above others. When someone else brings us a wrong, that, sh- that should be some of the most, we should take that more seriously, perhaps, than anything else someone says to us. It's a moment to look in, am I taking the place of God? It's a moment to slow down, that Christians should be the most open people to inviting critique. We know how easy it is to want to be God and to call our own shots and to push people out of the way. And so I think it's a question worth asking. The last time someone came to you and said, you know, I think you're off, what was your, what was your gut reaction? Was it an, open, uh, an openness of I need to think about this. Or was it, I'm on the throne, get out. A defensiveness, a rejection, not hearing, not listening. 
That's what Genesis says. Everything broke when that happened. And I, I want to be clear because I understand my own position because often, like, I think churches are really bad at this. Pastoral leaders are really bad at this. When, when we do wrong, which we will because we're sinners, just like everybody else, we don't invite that conversation. And we don't invite that openness. And we don't invite that, that space of, are we pursuing Jesus? Or is that subtle way we always try to get into the place of God, is that happening here? And I know that more than anyone else in this room, I have to model that life. Not of, of always, in my, you know, this sort of continual, I'm not sure if I'm ever doing anything right, but this openness that I recognize within me, I have the Genesis 3 blood flowing well, which is I want to be God and I want to call my own shots. And so this should be a community of invitation, of kindness, and of give and take, because our goal in life is not to be right. Our goal in life is to be like Jesus, and all of us have serious problems within our own hearts that are going to prevent us from that, that the people in this room probably see in us. And the question is, do we want to, do we want to come off the throne and invite that and grow and change? Or do we want to be kings, queens? What's, uh, just what has struck me about this verse from Joseph for the last two weeks, honestly, is just, like the, I, Joseph is terrified that he will take the place of God, and all of us should feel the same way. And it should express itself in the way we live our lives and invite critique and correction in our own lives. So that's one. The, uh, the other way we take the place of God, and this is, just come with me for a minute. The other way is, is when we worry. We replace God when we we worry. And I love the fact, like Joseph says, don't fear for am I in the place of God, almost to say, listen, if I was in the place of God, we should all be afraid. Right? Like, if, in other words, if I get the reins, that's actually, like, get, everyone should be worried at that point, is if any of us were actually to become God, that's the moment to freak out and start worrying. And the root of, I think, all of our worry, it ultimately comes down to this assumption that God, God's not going to get this right. And the trouble we're encountering, the things that give us anxiety and worry, what we're, what we're concerned about is that God, God can't make this right. He can't, he's going to screw it up, right? He's going to mess this up. And so I think the question for you, know, where we started in terms of how, when I, when I think of all that I'm going to give my life to, will God wrap that up well in the end? What is my ending? Is it just, you know, a box of bones? Is that it? I think the question for us to wrestle through is what, is, what are you afraid of? What is it that you fear? I mentioned this time before, but I've just been thinking a lot about this. Um, that this past summer, I went back to, to a place that was important to me, that I went in a, an important moment of my life to, to Kings Canyon National Park. And I got to take two of my boys with me this time. And, and the last time I was in the park, I was 23, and, and so 16 years had passed. And I was thinking about, like, you know, in that with two boys, thinking about all the things I'd experienced, the life I had lived. You know, it, when I was in there the first time, I'd you know, I was beginning to think I knew who I was going to marry. Um, I, was, I was right. Uh, and, but I was thinking about the, the direction ahead of me. And, and, you know, like thinking of what had happened in 16 years, um, there are th so many things that happened that if you had told me in that moment would have filled me with fear and anxiety and worry. And that, like, what? This is going to fall off, right? This, is, this isn't going to go well. Right? Things I look at and I wonder, like, where, how does this end? Right? Is, where is this going? And I think that's why Genesis begins, I mean, it's a very, I think a very intentional narrative choice by Moses as he, 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 he tells us this world story we're a part of, why it starts not with what's wrong, but with, with what's beautiful and right. Genesis 1, the, the power of this creation, the glory of this creation. And, and reading Genesis 1, you hear the refrain, and God said, 
let there be. And God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. Giving the image of Genesis 1, that, that this creation world you and I live in, is not a, it's not a mistake, but a spoken creation of God into this universe. He is, he is speaking creation. It's a, it's a picture of great power, of, of intimacy, of beauty, that we all are God's spoken creation. So when you get into God's creation, like outside of the streets and the buildings we build for ourselves and into mountains, right? Being in the Sierra Mountains, reflecting on the past of my life, it's, it's obvious. Like I didn't put these mountains here. Like I had nothing to do with these things. And yet here it is. Like here's this beautiful place for me to go and experience and to think and to dwell and to meditate. And if someone has the, the capacity to speak these mountains into existence, whatever is going on in, in, in my life in this moment, he can speak whatever ending he pleases. And so what are you, what are you worried about? What, what are you afraid is going to end badly for you? Because right, it's easy to feel that way in, you know, in a bunch of mountains, right? It's like we all feel good on vacation. But then you come down and you're faced with life, the worry, the reality. And we need to go back to Genesis 1 and remind ourselves of our place in this world. We are not God. We did not speak ourselves here. We did not create anything. This whole thing is here regardless of your best efforts. And we'll be here regardless of your best efforts. <laughs> Which is a moment to pause and to slow down and say, if he spoke this place here, if he spoke me here, he didn't just speak us here to, to get us into ruin. So that, listen, we, we try to be God when we worry and we think he's not going to get it right and we want to take control and we want to grab the ending for ourselves. We worry when we become our own moral authorities. That's, point, that's what Joseph says, I'm not in the place of God. That's the, that is an overarching lesson of Genesis. It's where Genesis 1 starts. It's what Genesis 3 says went wrong. That's first. Second, second is that evil will be meant for you in this world. This point is going to be really short and simple, but, but the word evil appears a lot in Genesis 50. The brothers acknowledge they've done evil to Joseph. Joseph acknowledges they have done evil to him. And that evil, uh, it's the Hebrew word raw, it's the same word that's in Genesis 3. The knowledge of the tree of the fruit of good and evil, it's the same word there that's at the end of Genesis 50. And what started as a beautiful, perfect, flourishing world is now a world filled with evil, filled with raw. And every single one of us in this, in this room will encounter the raw, the evil of this world. Not just unfortunate circumstances, not just mistaken moments, not just uh, an oops, right? We will all experience evil. And, and one, of, one of my beefs as a pastor that I'm trying to undo in this, this American Christianity we swim in is that I think in Christianity today we have this tendency to reduce evil to just things that are unfortunate or disappointing or bad circumstances and not naming evil as evil. And the biggest, the biggest trouble I have with the Christianity of my youth that I grew up with was that, that I think essentially I was taught the central message, message of Christianity is don't worry, be happy. Not, not evil will be meant for you and you will have to encounter it and experience it and wrestle with it. The Bible takes evil seriously. Joseph takes evil seriously. The brothers are taking the evil they've done seriously. And you will experience evil, which is why I think the two, maybe the two greatest prayers in the Bible go right to it. It's mentioned, right? The prayers aren't, you know, no big deal. God will get through it together. The two, maybe the two greatest prayers in the Bible, Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
Or Jesus gets to the end of his prayer. When he's teaching us how to pray, he says uh, to, to us, uh, lead us not into temptation, God, but deliver us from evil. There's this assumption that evil's all around us, ready to do harm, ready to destroy us. And the Bible takes it seriously. Evil will be meant for you. And yet, if just to stop there, that'd be a pretty pessimistic message. Like, hey, there's lots of evil, right? Like, that wouldn't be a great line. And yet, Genesis, this last line combines this, uh, Joseph saying to his brothers, you meant evil towards me, and God meant it for good. That God can make it, can make evil good. In the middle of the, the civil rights movement, the Montgomery bus boycott, which would many say was a, a turning point in terms of civil rights in our country. Martin Luther King Jr., he, was, uh, he received a death, call, a death threat one night, and he, he was ready to quit, to give up. What the, the boycott was not going well. Um, the, I mean, he's just, his whole family's just been threatened on the phone. So he hangs up the phone, he can't go to sleep, and he makes himself a pot of coffee, and he, he sits down at the kitchen table, basically gaming out, how do I get out of this? How do I quit and not save and not lose face? And here's what he writes about that night. He says, I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. This moment, I think, highlights what the book of Genesis is, which is, is that God likes to show up, but only when it's too late. Right? Once King's ready to quit, and I love the line, uh, right, when my courage had all but gone, then I decided to take my problem to God, which is not the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to start with God and let that work into our problems, whether starting with our problems and working those up to God. And yet that's how we all do it, right? We wait till it's too late, and then it's like, all right, now I, I guess I'll pray now. And God, God only shows up when it's too late. And you've seen this throughout Genesis. So it starts with Abraham. Abraham is promised that through his own children, the whole world is going to be saved. But then he's 100 years old. He can't have kids anymore. Neither can his wife. It's too late. So God gives them a son. Or then you move to Isaac. And Isaac, the son of Abraham, he plays favorites with his brothers, Jacob, and, with his sons, Jacob and Esau, so much so that it destroys the family. Esau decides he wants to kill Jacob, and Jacob has to run for his life. And Jacob runs for his life until he can't run anymore, and he's got to come back. And the night before, he's about to face his brother Esau, not sure whether or not Esau's going to kill him and take his family wealth away from him and destroy his life, his story end in disaster. That's the moment God shows up and blesses him and promises him. Or then you get to, to Jacob. He has 12 sons. He repeats the sin of showing favoritism to Joseph over all of his other brothers. And so Joseph ends up, or Jacob, through this, destroys his family. Joseph ends up in slavery. Families strife, destroys everything. And then at the end, when it's too late and Joseph's in slavery and the brothers are starving from a famine, he brings them all back together and he reunites their family. And Genesis 50 ends with a reconciled family of God who's now ready to go and take this blessing out into the entire world. And for whatever reason, God only shows up when it's too late. 
And Joseph is the culmination of that, that story that's been running all through Genesis because it starts. I mean, Genesis, the narrative of the people of God of Israel starts in Genesis 12 when God goes to Abraham and says, I want to I bless the entire world through this family. I want to bring salvation to the entire world through this family. And what happens? Well, they, the brothers, they, they sell Joseph off into slavery. And there's family strife and there's disaster. And it's like, how in the world is this family going to bring salvation to the entire world when they're destroying themselves? And what we find is that, that through the means of them destroying one another, God uses them to bring salvation to the world. And the end of Genesis is the brothers sell their brother into slavery and, and God uses that to save many. It's not like... This may be too strong, but I think it's true. If, if you are in the way of God, if you're in the promise of God, you literally cannot ruin your life. You can make the worst decisions. You can sell your brother into slavery, and God will just, just use that for good. If you are in the way and the promises of God, it's never too late, because God doesn't show up until it's too late. And that's how Joseph ends, or that's how G Genesis ends, the life of Joseph ends. And Joseph, he says this, I want to read both, or sort of the last three verses of, of Genesis, the whole context of what happens at the end. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit, visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. I love this, but why does Joseph care about where his bones end up? Right, if our story just ends with bones in a box, why does Joseph say, wherever you go, you take my bones with you? Because God is going to visit you. And because God is going to visit you, you keep my bones close to the promises of God. And so this, like the closing question of Genesis for us is where, where are you going to take your bones? What box are you going to put them in and where do they go after you're gone? What are you resting your promises and your hopes in? Because Joseph's hope is so deeply embedded in the promises of God to this family that, that God will visit them that he wants his bones close, close by. Right? You keep my bones with the promises of God. And so what, what does Joseph know that leads him to do this? And we talked about this last week, but remember, the, the whole central orienting promise of Genesis is that God's going to use this family to bring salvation to the world. And so that's sort of how Genesis operates. And you see this begin to happen. But the question is, well, now after these 12 sons and they're in Egypt, what next about how God's going to use this family to break salvation into the world. And the closing hint we got, I, I hinted at this last week, is in Genesis 49.10, where Jacob is speaking blessings and words over his children, and he says this to his son Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Right? Judah's a lion. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. So Judah is told, you're a lion, and you, from you will come a king who will rule over the whole world. 
which is a pretty stunning statement to a group of 12 guys who, like, just, you know, sold one of their brothers off into slavery, can barely, you know, aren't reconciled to each other yet totally. And through Jacob, God speaks a word over Judah and says, there will be a king, and the whole world will be obedient to him one day. And that, that's what Joseph is saying. That's why he's saying, keep my bones with this promise. There's something coming. There's something going to happen. I don't know what it is. I just know God has promised to save this world through this family, and I want my bones with that promise. And the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, picks up this promise. The prophets pick up this promise. Micah picks up this promise in Micah 5, 2, when he prophesies this. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from of ancient days. It was foretold in Genesis. Micah now says, from Judah, now it's Bethlehem, this king will be born out of. And that promise takes root so that a Jewish man named Matthew claims to have seen the birth of that king, Jesus, who is called the Lion of Judah in the New Testament. And that Jesus, if there was anyone for whom it was too late, it was, this, is him, this is it. God waited too late to show up with Jesus because evil was meant for him. Evil was directed at him by his own people, by the descendants of Joseph, by the descendants of Judah, by the most powerful forces of the day, the Roman state, all of the evil in the world was directed at him by the religious authorities of the day and by the cultural and political powers of the day. And all of the evil was directed towards him on a cross, and he was killed. The king of Judah, the line of Judah, was killed on a cross and was dead in the ground for three days, which is, that is too late. When you're dead for three days, it's too late. And yet God took all of the evil directed towards him, and he meant it good. And brought about the salvation of many, many people, including every person in this room who is called on the name of the Lord. And yet, that's, that's not all that this king of Judah, Joseph, wanted to keep his bones with. You fast forward to the end of the Bible, to Revelation, and there's this scene in Revelation where everyone in the heavens is, they're weeping. They're sad. They're, because no one is able to open the scroll of God. And to us, it's like, what does that mean? Well, the scroll... Essentially what's happened is the church is suffering, people have died, the world is, is evil. And to open the scroll of God is to, to accomplish his purposes. It's to take that evil and to make it right. It's to bring justice. It's to bring the new creation. It's to bring salvation. And in heaven, everything pauses because no one can open the scroll. No one is able to bring the purposes of God to pass. And then we read, we read this. John writes, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to break open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one could make things right. This was all going to end in a bunch of bones, right? That's, no one can make this right. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And the book of Revelation kicks off and Jesus begins to reintroduce, re-enter into his world to make all things new, to bring salvation, to bring hope and joy. And here's the thing, Joseph never saw or heard any of this. All he had was that one day there'd be a king from Judah to whom the entire world was be, was, would be obedient to. And Joseph said, you do not let my bones leave that promise. You keep, wherever you go, you keep my bones with that promise. And you and I have so much more to hold on to 
with our own bones and our own box than Joseph ever had. We get this glimpse into heaven. We have the birth of the king, the lion of Judah, Jesus are uh, himself. And so we can all sit this morning in a very different place than Joseph, wondering, how does this end? Where does my story end? How does this all get tied together? Is it bones in a box? We can wrap this all in, in such a better way than Joseph, with, with such more hope than Joseph had. That what This morning, what are you afraid of? I mean, it's real things. I mean, that is not a demeaning question. There is real evil in this world. What do you think God is going to get wrong? What are you afraid of? And our response to that question is, don't, do not fear, for we are not in the place of, of God. And what God meant for, or what is meant for evil, God will mean it for good. Let's pray. Father, in some ways that statement uh, could sound really trite and dismissive of evil. And yet we know in Joseph's story, he is, he's not dismissed the pain and the reality of being a slave and being in prison and being unjustly treated. And yet he's able to look back over his past and look ahead to his future, even after death, and to see that you, you take bones in, in a box and you bring resurrection life. And in a world with evil, it's just, God, it's one, it's easy to try to take your place and become God, and two, it's just hard to hold on to that promise, to keep our bones with your promise. And I... Lord, I just pray, first and foremost, for those of us who are in the way of Jesus, that we would, we would keep our bones with you. Our dying hope would be the resurrection life of Jesus. And for those of us who, who have not put our faith and trust in Jesus, who are still in the place of being our own gods, Lord, move us out of that place and into to following Jesus with all we have. I pray this in his name. Amen.